friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Thank you for joining us again this week on Conversations with Consequences. We have a great show lined up for you today, as we try to do every week, with the topic of surrogacy trending, with a a celebrity recently regretting her decision and calling it transactional. Secular news outlets have actually been reporting on the harm caused by surrogacy, harm to the mother, the father, and most importantly, the child. Ashley McGuire, my TCA colleague and co-hostess, joins me to discuss this case and surrogacy in general. But first, as we enter into June month, and now what we have learned to regard as Pride Month, with companies like Target being boycotted over their promotion of rainbows and alphabets, we talked to Dr. Jennifer Roback-Morse about the promotion of gender dysphoria and why science simply doesn't support this new era of the sexual revolution that is leaving so many young people and teens in depression and suicide. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. You know, Gracie, I'm concerned about this also, especially when we have top people in the church, top churchmen, uh, cardinals even, who should know better, saying the church must change her teaching because modern science has proven to us things that we don't that we didn't know before, and so on and so forth. And the fact is, the the most recent science, the most thorough science, is consistent with the church's teachings. In other words, the most recent science is saying there's no gay gene. If you look at the genetic, you know, the genetics of of gay people and straight people people who identify as gay, you won't be able to tell them apart. There's nothing to distinguish them. And so, so that there was a very big study along those lines in about 2019 that really examined the whole question very thoroughly. And, you know, there's just, there's no gay gene. I mean, there just isn't, right? So, and then if you look at the twin studies, um, you know, the studies of identical twins, identical twins have identical genetic material, right? Their DNA is exactly the same. They were one, they were one embryo that split in half. I, I guess you're the doctor. You know how that works, right? Um, but they have identical DNA. And so if, uh, if it were true that people were born gay, that you would have 100% what is called concordance, 100% matching. If one twin is gay, the other identical twin should be gay. And if one twin is straight, the other identical twin should be straight. Well, instead of 100%, you get something more like 30%. The the causes of a person having a a persistent same-sex attraction, okay, let's put it that way. The causes are complex, not fully known. Um, even the American Psychological Association admits that this is true, right? Um, so I, I thought it was really important at this moment to to spell out as much of that science as I could. And that article that you saw in the register is based on a much longer report that I put together over at the Ruth Institute, um, which is you know 33 pages and goes through all these myths and you know a little bit more detail and a little bit more evidence. Um, on, on on why so much of our current thinking is really is really incorrect scientifically scientifically incorrect. Now, why is it so important? Why is this? Um, why is it so important morally? 
and ethically and spiritually to understand that the science that the science doesn't support that people are born gay. Well, I, I, there are a couple of reasons. I mean, and I and I, again, I go through that in in the ebook. The ebook is called "Protecting Your Family from the Top Five Gay Men," and it's really easy to find on our website at theruthinstitute.org. But you know, for Americans, for us as Americans, the thrust of the gay rights movement has been to try to convince people that gay is like black. Uh, if I could just summarize it bluntly, you know, that being gay is like being black. And for the purposes of the law, what they want to show is that being gay is a innate immutable trait or an innate immutable characteristic, meaning you're born with it and you can't change it. And if you could prove that, if you could convince everybody that that was true, let's put it that way, if you could convince everybody that gay was like, that it was immutable and innate, then all of the law, the whole body of law that has been developed for anti-discrimination against people who are born black and for whom that is an innate immutable trait, all that body of law could be transferred pretty easily over to sexual orientation, which and sexual orientation is not like black exactly because sexual orientation is a complex of thoughts and feelings and desires, sexual desires, um, self-identification, philosophy, you know, it's a whole complex of things unlike skin color, which is pretty obvious, you know, when you when you grasp that, that that's what was at stake in the overall political campaign or the overall campaign for social change, let's put it that way. This was a very important thing to convince people of. And so that's why they put have put so much effort into repeating this rhetoric again and again, you know, and searching for the gay gene and searching for any scrap of evidence they could find that would seem to suggest that it was an inborn immutable trait. But but that that's over, you know, I mean, that's just that's not even sustainable anymore you know the, the search for the gay gene is over it's not there it's like looking for a unicorn or something well let me go down that path a little bit so you say that um the idea is to convince us that uh being um gay is like being a certain race you're born like that right. it's a hundred percent you can't erase your skin color you can right. you, you can try to paper over it but it's there that it's in your genes but that being gay is like that so that people who have these attractions have to be treated um, with that same deference, right? That we would give to to, that, to people that, right. that we need to protect from from abuses of their civil liberties, right? That, that that's right. That's right. That, okay. That to, make, to make any distinction between a gay person and a straight person, you know, it is like making a distinction between black and white. You know, that that's but, what, and and let me let me tell you before you go any further. Let me tell you, I have talked to a lot of black people who despise this. I mean, it really makes them mad that the civil rights movement, their civil rights movement, for which they bled, you know, that that's, in their view, that's being co-opted. Yes, I can see how that would be very disturbing. That's right. They don't like it. And and then and then it's disturbing in another way, because if if there is a difference in treatment, there's a difference between what you are as a race and how you behave, right? So they're saying, well... um, a gay person, if, say a person was born gay, they might have these ten, these proclivities, these desires, a same-sex attraction. That has nothing to do with how they express their lives, right? In their in their actions. So there's a whole other section where you move on to well, the things that I desire and that I want, do I act on those things, right? Which is a moral responsibility. Correct. Um, so Correct. there's a there's that other sec there's that other ver- um, next level, right? So if right. people are have these pro the, these these tendencies or these attractions that they're born with, 
then they have to be allowed to act them out and to and to tell and they're not morally re- accountable and to try to make them morally accountable accountable would be cruel correct that's right that's right that's right and the the interesting thing about that is that well well there are there are a number of interesting things about that but i, I like that you use the phrase morally accountable you know because in a sense you're saying if you have these attractions then you're entitled to act on them and in fact you know we've gone further than that if you don't act on them it's going to make you sick ah, you know yes. you're going to be, you're going to become repressed and it's going to be bad for you and so on and so forth I, uh, let's just pause on that for a moment and and understand that that underlying that is another whole set of myths of the sexual revolution which is that sex is so natural sex is sex is like breathing or like uh, or like eating and drinking something like that you're going to die if you don't have sex it's, it's not that nobody exactly says that but they but, act like but it, it. <laughs> but, they act, but they act like it and, and you know I, I have asked many doctors this and i'm not the right kind of doctor for this question so i'll ask you has anyone ever died from not having sex on the contrary people have died from having sex <laughs> <laughs> the wrong kind in the wrong place, in the wrong <laughs> situation, and so on and so forth. That's right. So, so, but that's part of the sexual revolution that that repressing people's sexual urges is bad for us, and therefore we have to get. And that's supposedly science, right? And so, therefore, we need to get rid of the taboos against certain behavior because the taboos are doing us more harm the than than the structures that we put in place. You know, you and I might think of it well. We have certain structures and and rules and boundaries on our sexual behavior because. Sexual behavior has social consequences. You might produce a baby, and we have to provide for the babies. You know, it's a pretty mm-hmm. basic thing. And, and it's such a powerful—it's such a powerful motivator and a driver in human emotions yeah. and our and our actions that it has to sort of be kept in a safe place, right? Otherwise, it, I, I, it, it rules us. It turns into a terrible tyrant. That's exactly right, and that aspect of it is the one thing that you know so many of the hardcore sexual revolutionaries never want to admit that you know so if you say my attractions are exclusively towards someone forbidden and you tell me i you know that that it's forbidden and i can't have it um then that's bad for me well the fact is you can live without sex everybody can live without sex anybody can live without sex you know it can be done um you know millions of people have done it for for a whole lifetime right and lots of people do it for part of the time you know a lot of people believe you can live without it but that it's it's a crushingly uh, horrifying existence right and and they say it like that because they will say well but yes i mean very good people who who are very charitable in their thoughts and 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 maybe and and their church going catholics for instance and i've heard this over and over again but they also want to have this the you know they also need to have that closeness and that warmth and affection of of sexuality how why would you deny them that if they were born that way so that's uh the way yeah. go back to the born that way <laughs> fallacy right that's right that's right that's right and and as you said and i think people should be able to understand this you know if you if you if you set aside the gay part of this thing and just think about human sexuality, I think most adults are aware that sec- that the des- that sexual desire can be so powerful that it takes over your mind, right? And it takes over your it, and it takes you it takes you over, right? There's an addictive quality to sexual activity. I, I think we're on safe ground saying that not everybody's a sex addict, but I think most people can identify with, yeah, it can be really powerful. And you wonder if you're in command of it. Well, look, it's important that we all be in command of it, right? It's important that we all be in command of our sexual desire and our sexual urges. There's definitely a drive in our culture to 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 give equal stage to every kind of sexual That's attraction. Right. That's right. And I want right. to ask you, 
this this latest thing that that is obviously the next thing on our horizon is is pedophilia or the minor attracted person as they like to they're trying to you know change that around so that it's it sounds much more acceptable and it's just another thing that you might be born with right like you were born with, a, right. with an attraction right. to minors and that's right people are having trouble swallowing that but i think it's just a i think we're just hearing it for the first time and the culture has to get a little a little time to acclimatize right to this idea that some people are born pedophiles <laughs> and so, somehow so, and somehow we have to be very generous to them too that's right that's right and and you know i i from the very beginning some of the founders of the sexual revolution some of the key thinkers alfred kinsey i would put alfred kinsey in this category Wilhelm Reich, who wrote the first book called The Sexual Revolution, they were not themselves pedophiles, but they were sympathetic to pedophiles. They thought the pedophiles were misunderstood and persecuted by society, and that the, and that and that children were sexual beings. Children are sexual beings, and so children have a right to have sexual activity amongst themselves, at the very least. And if a nice older person came along to initiate them, maybe bad. it wouldn't be too bad. Yeah. Wouldn't be too. It was the grown-ups being upset about it. That's the problem. That was the problem. Yeah, and and I can tell you, I have now, you know, in my work covering and and dealing with the clergy sex abuse crisis in the church, we as Catholics still think it's a crisis, right? We still think it's wrong. You know, I have yet to talk to anybody who said. Oh, everyone around me was doing it, and so I, I was really okay with me. It didn't really, you know, all the adults thought it was fine, so therefore I thought it was fine. I've never heard anybody say that. You know, they know from the beginning that it's not fine. It doesn't feel good to them, and so on, you know. So, yes, and, and recently the, the state of Connecticut rewrote its anti-discrimination statutes in such a way that the minor attracted person could come under the anti-discrimination law. Really? In the sense that they have they have changed it to um, sexual identity and orientation. I think is what they did. Okay, so if if it's if it's that broad, uh, and then you can redefine pedophilia as an orientation, then boom, there you go. Of course, they didn't say we are going to protect pedophiles. They didn't say that. If you change the wording so that what you're protecting is sexual orientations, right, mm-hmm. um, and then you redefine what counts as a sexual orientation, you're, then you can achieve that objective. And I know, and I'm sure you do, you know this as well, there are lots of people who are committed to a gay identity who despise that kind of stuff. Of course. You know, who don't want anything to do with that, right? And but 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 the problem is the categories we're working with now don't protect us from that kind of stuff. That that's the point that we need to understand. You know, when you talk about sexual orientation as if it were a trait like race, right? Something given, something immutable. You talk about it like that, you have crossed a line into something in, into a misunderstanding of what sexual orientation is. In my report, um, Gracie, in my in my um, in my ebook that I have that people can get at the Ruth Institute. Another one of the myths that's kind of a, a level deeper than this is the idea that sexual orientation is a well-defined, scientifically identifi- identifiable thing. It is not. There is no generally accepted scientific definition of gay. Now, you can say, I know a gay person when I see one. I'm gay. I know I'm gay. There's no question in my mind. I get I get that you think that. But when you break it down into what, what, what it consists of, you know, it's a complex combination of thoughts and feelings and behaviors and meanings that you attach to all of those things and self-identification. It's a complex set of things. It would be astonishing 
if that was like race, right? It's just too complicated of a thing to say um, it's it's you're born that way. Let me ask okay. you if, if if you agree with me. I think that the 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 push towards um, the transing of children or making mm-hmm. making mm-hmm. trans identities available to children from toddlerhood. I believe that that's. Uh, just another that's pedophilia in a different in a different guise wearing a different mask because it's the it's the sexualization of children making the idea of a child as a sexual being with sexual desires and sexual with a sexual destiny right that 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 child can choose from a very early age you're sexualizing the child and i and i've seen this i think perhaps you agree i've seen it very much exhibited in the in the drag queen story hour things for children where children are exposed to these transgressive sexual experiences right like very young and and that i see these images on on the internet of parents bringing their children little children right. to right. to participate in these shows as they're what you know they're watching they're in the audience but they're participants and 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 they they are needed participants those drag queens need the children to be there that's part of the fetish is to expose themselves well, to the children in some well ways. I, ho- hold on hold on because I, I think it's a little more complicated than that um i think you're where you're correct it is definitely early sexualization of children mm-hmm. no question no question about that at all you know that that children are being there is a, a theory or a thought or a fantasy i don't know what you want to call it but an idea that it is somehow good for children that they be sexualized at an early age mm-hmm. okay it is true that some of the drag performers who have shown up at these libraries uh, and some of our activists have found this out some of them have criminal records Okay, my friend in Houston did some investigations like this guy, you know, she found a couple of these guys who had uh, uh, sex crimes against minors on their record. Okay, and the library had not vetted them to find that out. It's like, you're going to let this guy come. But I'm I'm not convinced. I don't know. I don't know for sure that the drag queen fetish is a child abuse fetish. It may be for some people. I think it's more fundamentally that these guys get sexually aroused seeing themselves in women's clothes. Oh, yes, yes. Yes, right? I agree. I agree. I just, I when the insistence in including the children seems to me that it, there must be a part of the fetish involved in that and having the child as a part, as a, as a spectator. I'm not saying yeah, they want to touch. I'm not saying they want to touch the children <laughs> or have, right, right, or right. have improper relations with them, but somehow the presence of the child... It must be something that they want, because otherwise, why would these men be going to libraries and having toddler hours? I mean, well, the real the real question is, why are the library association allowing it? Yeah, that's that's true. That is a real question. (laughs) Right. Okay. so let's let's focus on that, because I think I I think there's there's a very grave responsibility there on Mm -hmm. the on the part of the public library authorities, because what they're what they're thinking is that we are making these children more tolerant by exposing them to this type of stuff. That thought right there is completely toxic mm-hmm. you know? mm-hmm. and, I, and I think I think it would be wise to focus on that because that's that's toxic regardless of whether the particular guy who's there in his outrageous clothing um, has, has designs yeah, on children I, I, or not <laughs> right exactly exactly that's the more fundamental problem. well Jennifer yeah. going back going back to born gay ah okay if 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 the if the if the LGBT the LGB activists for so many decades have been trying to prove that that this is an innate fixed thing that is born maybe it's 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 pounded into your genes but you're born with it and it has to be it has to be respected 
um, what to, to what to make of the next level, which is the trans level, that says that that the, our sexual orientation is not only innate and immutable, but it's also completely fluid and changeable at any moment. How does that? How do those two ideas exist in the same space? That is a very good question. So on the one hand, sexual orientation is immutable, can't change, but the sex of the body is completely fluid, and you can change it. That's completely illogical. From a, a normal scientific perspective, that is completely illogical because sexual orientation is a concept which presupposes biological sex. This is why you have lesbians who are furious with the trans people, because to say I'm I'm a lesbian is to say I'm a person in a woman's body. I, I am I am a woman. I have a woman's body. I am a woman. And I'm sexually attracted to other people with women's bodies, other women, you know, mm -hmm. and so sexual orientation presupposes the sex of the body is a thing, right? If you really didn't care, if you could really, you know, if you if you could magically change from one to the other, you wouldn't be able to say sexual orientation was a fixed thing. Sexual orientation wouldn't even mean anything. So so the question is, in the minds of the activists, how do these two things fit together? This, I think, is helpful for people to understand. To you and me, it doesn't fit. <laughs> you and me, it's a blatant contradiction. But the thing these things both have in common is that they are both in their own way saying that the body and our physical existence, our bodily gendered sexual existence is not really that important. Because the trans people, it's obvious that they're saying the body, the, I, I can transcend the body I have because I can change the sex of it. But in their own way, the people who are claiming that they're not heterosexual are saying the sex of the body is unimportant because... Mm. Uh, I, I can have sexual activity with someone for whom my body is not designed. I disregard the sex of my body for this particular purpose. I think, right? uh, Jennifer, I think this brings us to a, a part of your of your piece in the National Catholic Register, which I thought was so helpful. And maybe you can go over it with us, is the ordering of sex, the way sex is ordered. Because I think this is this is the big missing piece in many people's brains when it comes to human sexuality. So please explain that to us. Yes, 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 yes. So, so the church famously says that, well, let, let, let me back up. The, the phraseology that is sometimes used is intrinsically disordered, okay? Sexual, homosexual acts are intrinsically disordered. What the church means when she says that is that the sexual act is ordered towards procreation. The design of the body is such that the sexual act is ordered toward procreation. If you do something other than that, if you interrupt it or you do some other form of sexual act, it, it is disordered from the perspective of what the ultimate end is of human sexuality. So it's not disordered like your room. It's a different kind of order, right? The the way that we are made uh, physically Correct. and the way that our bodies function, that means that our sexuality exists for a certain purpose, and that's the order of, of, that's of our right. sexuality. That's right. And, and in philosophy, it's called the telos or teleology, the end. What is the mm -hmm. proper end of, of something? And so even though some people are born blind, you would never deny that the point of the eye, the purpose of the eye, the it eye is, is ordered toward seeing, you know, the eye is ordered toward mm -hmm. seeing, even if sometimes it goes wrong, you know, you still know what why it's there. And I think that one of the reasons people have trouble seeing the significance of this fact, right, the significance of the, of the proper ordering of the sexual act is because of our widespread acceptance of sex as a sterile activity. The, the, the whole society has mentally bracketed procreation 
as a fundamental purpose of sexuality. And and that's the whole contraceptive ideology working on us since 1965. Yes. You know, over time on us to say sexual activity is, is is an entitlement and you're entitled to have it without a without the inconvenience of a baby. It's normally for most of your life going to be a sterile activity with no moral or social significance. And the church wants to say, and I want to say, that that is incorrect. Even if it happens that you're you, you're infertile, your ovaries don't work, or your you know, your your testes got zapped in a nuclear accident or something, the body is still ordered towards sexual reproduction of one man and one woman. That's how the body is ordered, and even though you don't have a baby every time, that's still the order of sexuality. And because we've forgotten that, we assume that we can do things, that, that when we do things that are not ordered in that way, that nothing bad's going to happen. And in fact, if we look around our culture, all kinds of bad things have happened as a result of disordered sexuality, whether it's from, you know, and most of it, frankly, from heterosexuals, let's be honest, right? There's mm-hmm. a lot of disorder, disordered heterosexual sex. But when the, the catechism refers to intrinsically disordered, what they're saying is that I could have sex with someone other than my husband. That would be a disordered use of my sexual powers, right? But my desire for a man, my desire for a husband can be rightly ordered, right? That act can be rightly ordered. I can have sex with my husband in a context that's open to life. That can be rightly ordered. You can't have a homosexual act that is rightly ordered towards procreation. It can't be done. And so society's decided to bracket all of that kind of talk about procreation. And so therefore people can't see, this is why people can't see the difference between, um, you know, two men being together and producing orgasms and a man and a woman being together and producing orgasms, you know, because the orgasms is the only point, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's the only point of the thing, you know, and the, the, the pleasure. The that, yeah. Yeah. And, and the, and, and this is Kinsey too. This is, I, I think this Kinsey in his pseudoscience, you know, well, Jennifer, unfortunately bit. we're all out of time, but you know, I can't thank you enough because that, that was such a beautiful explanation of the ordering of sexuality. And I, and I really do believe that these are the sort of the missing pieces in people's heads. Yeah. And as you say, because we've been trained by decades of a kind of uh, a completely wrong anthropological idea of sexuality, right? For starting with heterosexual relations, but of course, encompassing all these other different kinds of relationships. Um, So thank you for explaining that so, so wonderfully. And before you go, please remind our our listeners where they can get your ebook, which sounds fascinating that I'm going to order right now, actually, when I hang up. And it's completely free. It's completely free. Just go to ruthinstitute.org and um, right right on the homepage, it'll take you someplace where you can order it. It's called Protecting Your Family from the Top Five Gay Myths. And the ones we didn't talk about, we haven't even gotten, you know, through all of them. But uh, the, the other one is that you can't change your sexual orientation and trying to change your sexual orientation is going to harm you. This is all big issue now. In a lot of ways, we haven't even had a chance to talk about that. So maybe you'll um, come back on soon and we can uh, get that one in depth, which I think that's a really important one too, Jennifer. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and joining me for the rest of this segment is my dear friend and co-hostess and colleague at the Catholic Association, Ashley McGuire. We thought we'd talk this uh, week about something that is in the news right now, which is 
the concept of surrogacy, the practice of surrogacy. And it's in the news because someone I don't follow at all. I'm really poor. I'm really poorly educated on my on my celebrity news. Always. I'm always amazed that my children, for instance, my older children, they know everything that's happening with all these people. I'm like, who, who, who are you talking about? And they talk to me about it and I'm at a loss. But um, it's all out there. People are talking about it. They are interested in this concept. And Khloe Kardashian had a baby by surrogacy recently and was and spoke very openly about it, about how it made her feel and and what that experience was like. Yeah, so she spoke pretty candidly, I think more candidly than we're used to from Hollywood, where the practice of surrogacy is widespread. You know, I somebody once told me that Hollywood really contributes to the false impression that fertility is this like long lasting thing because so many of these A-list celebrities are having babies in their, you know, mid to late 40s and even their 50s and that they're not actually quote unquote having the babies. They're not uh, gestating them and giving birth to them. They're hiring surrogates. Uh, Khloe Kardashian is on the younger end. I'm not sure what letter to use a surrogate, but it's a very common practice in Hollywood. And I think Hollywood probably more than any other facet of American life has done more to normalize surrogacy and mainstream it um, and make it socially acceptable. Yeah. <clears throat> and also but, you mentioned that people uh, think that fertility is ex infinitely extendable. So there is that sense that, well, I don't have to have children in my 20s, I don't have to have children in my 30s, or even in my early 40s, I can just have them by surrogacy later. When my career has already taken off, um, right. when I've squeezed all that juice out of all of that of that lemon, then I can I can have a baby, and if it doesn't work for me, I'll just have a surrogate do it. Yeah, no, and I think I think for quite a while, celebrities weren't quite so forthcoming about the fact that they were using surrogates, and so that was making people be like, oh, you know, so and so, she just had a baby at uh, forty four. Um, so I don't need to worry about this, but more and more they're coming out and talking about the practice of surrogacy and what made Chloe uh, Kardashian and her sister Kim also use surrogates. What made her remarks interesting was that it was really the first time that I've seen in Hollywood a celebrity talk about it in a negative way. Um, and specifically, she said, I wish someone was honest about surrogacy. Uh, and she said that it made her feel less connected to her newborn but she also described the process as transactional. And that is what I thought was interesting because you know, I think we have to be careful when we talk about surrogacy because specifically she said, I felt really guilty that this woman just had my baby and then I take the baby and I go into another room and you're separated. And it's like, okay, well, that's, you know, in many cases, the same process that happens with adoption. And you know, that is adoption is not a transactional process. That's, you know, a beautiful thing where one woman who's, you know, unable for whatever reason to care for the baby that she's brought into the world, places the baby with a loving family that's longing to care for that baby. Um, and it's about the baby. Although actually it's interesting because Chloe said it's not about him. It's a transactional experience because it's not about him. And I do think that her comments are reflective of the reality that you know, we live in this world where women's bodies are commodified and it's not, I mean, surrogacy is really just sort of the extreme fruition of that. I mean, it started a long time ago with, I mean, I would argue with hormonal birth control, which made women sort of a, you know, 
an entity to be used by men um, with abortion, which is another way to profit off of women's bodies, then with uh, reproductive technology, which is yet another way to profit off of women's bodies. And surrogacy is kind of where it's led us. And I mean, it's, wouldn't you it's say not, sla- uh, um, surrogacy is a kind of slavery? I mean, you are oh, employing right. someone else's body. You're employing a woman as an instrument, right? You're instrumentalizing her to the nth degree by putting her into this uh, state as a gestator, as a kind of incubator. And then a lot, And then she feels, I mean, we've been, you and I have been pregnant. We know you feel this intimacy and connectedness and this child becomes part of your flesh. There is no, your brain and your body, your hormones, they don't differentiate where the egg came from and the sperm. That's a baby growing inside you. I remember always after I went back to work, after um, after my pregnancies, I would miss my baby, but I would miss actually two babies. I had this idea that I was missing two babies. I was missing the baby I left at home and I was missing the baby that I carried with me for so long at work. I had this beautiful, I had my child with me at work for for those months. And it was a very special bond that I was feeling the child move and relating to that that object of my affection and growing an attachment over those months. So the woman who's carrying this baby, she's, she's being used as an instrument, as an incubator. And all these real things are happening to her. And yet, yeah. like you say, we, we have used, we've we turned women's bodies into commodities that we can pick up and put down. Right. And I mean, I'm not the one who invented this expression that you're renting a womb. Uh, that is what surrogacy is. And, you know, I think there's been a push to argue, just like there has been a, a push to art to redefine prostitution as quote unquote sex work as if to give it some kind of positive agency, like this is something that women are choosing, not that they're basically being forced into out of sheer desperation, um, which I think is really, really denigrates uh, the, the woman's actual experience, which is, I mean, the truth is that no woman is going to choose prostitution because they find that quote unquote empowering. They're choosing it because they feel like they have absolutely no other choice left except to rent out their body. You know, let me, let me disagree with you a little bit because women do choose to have OnlyFans pages, right? That women, women in our, in our society who have lots of options, unlike women have had options in all of history, um, in order they can, rely on the government they can they can go back to school there's things that women can do to to not live mired in poverty and many of them choose to have only fans um, prostitution pages and and use their bodies that way but uh, so i'm I've, i, I want to disagree a little bit but the i think what the point of the philosophical point is that we have we have placed on the highest pedestal self-determination so we say if a woman chooses to do something and we can, yeah, we can say, well, many of them aren't choosing it and that's bad because they're being driven to it. But then there's that part of the, you know, that group of women that are choosing to, to, to rent out their wombs or to rent their bodies or to expose themselves on the internet for money. Um, so those women, we still are going to elevate them on a pedestal because it's their self-determination and their, and their, their ability to do what they want, right? Like, I'm going to do what I want and that's the greatest good. So I would say... Because I think I get caught. We, I get caught when I when I when I argue with people about these things. Because if you say, well, if uh, no, not all women are choosing this. Well, then you're wrong, though, because there are some women that are choosing it. And I'd like to say all of this should be not allowed. All of it should be illegal because it is debasing of women. It's creating 
um, a market for women's bodies that is bad for all of us, no, no matter who's choosing it. If I'm choosing it as a woman or I'm, used, I'm choosing it as a John or as a user of women or a, 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 a womb renter, we are all damaging society. The fabric of our society is, is, is being stained. Well, uh, yes, and I agree with that. And it's worth pointing out that even in most of the United States of America, it's actually not that it's illegal per se, but it's not recognized. So surrogacy agreements in many states are not recognized as valid contracts. Um, and that's created a whole other host of issues where, I mean, there's no end to the horror stories of, you know, situations like there was a celebrity situation. I don't remember. It was, um, gosh, she's a famous television producer i forget her name but uh it was the craziest story where they used an egg and a sperm donor and a surrogate and then in the middle of the process divorced and then oh, yes every both the they i don't i think they were married but they were basically both of them put their hands up and said it's not my kid and so the surrogate was left with this baby who was actually in no way her genetic child and it was like talk about you know brave new world in terms of there's virtually no bioethical guardrails around surrogacy and then you know to go back to i mean much of the developed world has also outlawed surrogacy because they recognize that it's exploitative of women especially low-income women and so where do and, a lot of and wealthy- to your point and to your point it creates babies that have no home Right. And no yeah. and no real parent. And this I've heard that there I've read many cases in which um, the baby created by surrogacy is disabled and the parents, yeah. the surrogate, the the parents who ordered the baby, <laughs> they 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 abandon the child yeah. in or the they Ukraine surrogate to abort. And there's cases like that where there's abort. been a, a dispute. Should the you know, then the whole my body, my choice gets really turned upside down and then upside down again, because when the surrogate is saying, I don't want to have an abortion, the baby's in my body. And they're saying, well, it's our baby, it's our property. So it's not just commodifying of the woman, but just quickly back to what I was saying is it's created this market because it's illegal in so much of the developed world uh, where wealthy Americans are going to uh, very poor countries and really exploiting poor women for their bodies, mm-hmm. especially in places where these women don't have strong legal standing. Um, but it's also it's commodifying of the child. And you and I have talked about this, how in this country we treat children, you know, apart from the fact that we have commodified women's bodies, we treat children like some sort of weird property slash accessory slash vehicle for our own mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> personal um personal fulfillment and you know i'm side note i'm watching this fascinating documentary on netflix about um the operation varsity blues scandal where people were wealthy families were paying bribes to elite schools to get their kids into colleges and they were paying you know people to take the test for their kids they were making fake athletic profiles and wait what's the connection the connection is is in the beginning of this documentary, the people are openly, the sort of experts are openly talking about the fact that um, children all the way through college have become a weird way that parents sort of express their own personal, like the parents are more obsessed with getting their kids into elite schools because it's a status. They're treating their kids as just another status symbol. And um, right. You know, My child can't fail because or not 
be more be mediocre because that makes me a failure or mediocre, right? My right. daughter well, on the I way to school. And- my daughter on the way to school today. I was taking her for one, her one of her finals, and she was complaining that so many of the kids in school have extended time. Yeah, on their they tests. talk about this. And they, talk about this. they talk about that. And she said to me, Mom, you know what I noticed? All the rich girls, because she's yeah. in a girls' school, all the rich girls have extended time, yeah. but the regular girls don't. I said, wow, you really put your finger on it. For $2,000, you can get extended time for your child. And yeah. again, it's a way of, you're instrumentalizing the child, right? You're saying, yeah. okay, I my child has to succeed because in that child's success is my success. Right. Instead of seeing your child as a human being with their own path and their own object and their own you know they're created children of god with (laughs) with their own path to god that has nothing to do with you in a sense right you're here to shepherd them on their way and then let go (laughs) you know and the catholic uh philosophy surrounding all of this um reproductive um morals you know it's i think it's easier for people to understand when we're talking about things like ivf and surrogacy that there's a lot of destruction of life like willful destruction literally discarding of embryos that is problematic but there's a separate deeper more philosophical thing that we're kind of getting at here which is that you know the church has basically said that each child has a right to be created as an act of love between a man, a married man and a woman. By like, a mother and a father who then welcome that child and shepherd them through life. I mean, it's yeah. so beautiful. The family is such the, a beautiful thing. Surrogacy is an axe taken to the root of the family. Right. And that that's a right that basically precedes your existence. Like that even before you exist, you have the right to be brought into existence in a way that is not just treating you like a commercial transaction. And, um, you know, we live in an imperfect world and this is, you know, it's in no way to be dismissive of the, you know, extreme pain of infertility that our colleague Lee has talked about and written about so beautifully, but, but the cure, you know, as Lee said, the cure is the cure to the wounds of infertility is not necessarily a, a baby, you know, that that's yes, not exactly that. Um, and I'm not going to pretend to speak from that uh, experience, but um, well, you and, know, and, I think. And let's take it to the next level, because when we've been talking about surrogacy and, and talking about how probably most people who turn to surrogacy so far have been infertile couples, right? And we all have, like as you say, we have a very, we understand the pain. We maybe have not experienced it, but we can understand the pain of, of desperately wanting to make your family. And you can't because God's not sending your babies, right? Um, but surrogacy is being used by all sorts of types of people who are creating families. Um, I don't even want to prank, I don't even want to mention this in June. <laughs> but, you know, it's terrible. I saw an article People are saying any person has a right to a child. That they don't have to do anything to achieve this child except the $200,000 they have to spend on a surrogate. I was reading a, a thing in a magazine about men, how, how, hard it, how terrible it is that men who don't want to have relations with women and have a family with a woman have to spend $200,000 to obtain a child through a surrogate. Well, and you're getting at something that I've also written about, which is, so our culture is fascinated and fixated on the Handmaid's Tale series. And I I don't recommend that show to our viewers. It's it's graphic and it's disturbing, but um, 
it there is definitely you know the slippery slope it raises the question of how are we all the way at the bottom of the slippery slope i'm not sure yet because when people start talking about a right to a child and we've already basically destigmatized the use of the female body to produce children for other people at what point is coercion possible and yeah no i don't think that's i don't think it's far away we're we're gonna be we are coerced already into paying through our health insurance plans and and in some states through our taxes for ivf we're coerced already into paying for all sorts of things like abortion and birth control we all pay for birth control hormonal birth control by the by the bucket full from the from title 10 i think it is my gosh we are out of time ashley what a fascinating conversation i thank you so much for joining me um, this week on conversations with consequences, it's a it's a pregnant topic, surrogacy. There's a lot to learn about it, and and definitely it's a it's handmade tale kind of kind of stuff. So thank you for joining me. Thanks, Gracie. And now Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you. As we enter into the consequential conversation, the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Holy Trinity Sunday. Each Sunday is, in a very real sense, dedicated to God, and therefore every Sunday really is Trinity Sunday. But since the 1300s, the Church has celebrated on the Sunday immediately following Pentecost, a feast dedicated to the Holy Trinity, to help us focus more explicitly on who God is in His profound, mysterious depths, and therefore who we're called to be made in his image and likeness. Often when people are asked what's the most important teaching of Christianity, we get various answers. Some say the incarnation, others say the resurrection. Still others give a moral teaching like, love one another as I have loved you, or whatever you did to the least of my brothers you did to me. But the top of the hierarchy of Christian teaching is the revelation of the Blessed Trinity. The Catechism of the Catholic Church in an incredibly important paragraph emphasizes the mystery of the Holy Trinity is the central mystery of Christian faith and life. The teaching about the Trinity is what separates Christians from adherents of every other religion. Ancient Greco-Roman pagans were polytheists, believing in many gods often at war with each other. Buddhists are non-theistic agnostics who organize their life around a moral philosophy and discipline. Hindus are pantheistic, believing everything's God. Jews and Muslims are monopersonal monotheists. We Christians, on the other hand, are Trinitarian monotheists. That's why the Catechism stresses that the mystery of the Trinity is the central teaching of Christian faith and life. And it goes on to say why. It's the mystery of God in himself, the Catechism says. It's therefore the source of all the other mysteries of faith, the light that enlightens them. It's the most fundamental and essential teaching in the hierarchy of truths of faith. Therefore, the mystery of the Trinity enlightens the mystery of creation, the mystery of redemption, the mystery of sanctification. It illumines every page of sacred scripture, sheds light on the four last things, reveals what's the root of all the sacraments and prayer. The Catechism paragraph concludes, The whole history of salvation is identical with the history of the way and the means by which the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, reveals himself to men and reconciles and unites with himself those who turn away from sin. Underneath the history of the world, underneath our own personal history, from the moment of her conception in her mother's womb until now and beyond, has developed within the mystery of the Blessed Trinity. Therefore, it's crucial for us as human beings, not to mention believers, to pour ourselves into this mystery. This means not just pouring our minds, but our heart, soul, strength, and entire existence into this reality. Catechism underlines that the mystery of the Trinity is not just the central mystery of Christian faith, but also Christian life. Your life, my life, is meant to be a Trinitarian life. And so as we prepare to enter into the consequential conversation the second person of the Trinity wants to have with us this Sunday, we need to consider 
how to live a Trinitarian life. We're certainly helped to live this reality by the liturgy, although sometimes we fail to recognize it. The whole Mass, for example, is lived in communion with the Trinity. We begin Mass in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We end it by receiving the blessing of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Everything we do and say during the Mass is nothing other than a dialogue between us and the Father through the person of Jesus, in the light, with the help of, and in the unity of the Holy Spirit. The priest greets us all with St. Paul's words from the second reading of Trinity Sunday this year. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. The Mass is supposed to help us enter into God's grace, love, and communion. In the middle of Mass, we loudly proclaim that we've grounded our life in the mystery of the Trinity, uniting ourselves to the entire church in heaven, on earth, and in purgatory, as we say, I believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of light, proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified the end of the Eucharistic prayer. So we lift up Christ's body and blood to the Father and offer ourselves together with him. The priest, on behalf of Christ's whole mystical body, summarized the fundamental orientation of a Christian life. Through him, meaning Christ, with him and in him, O God Almighty Father, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor is yours forever and ever. But liturgy should never be separated from life. Catechism says we're called to live as we pray, to put into practice what the triune God has come to reveal to us and make possible. And so this Trinitarian life that's emphasized and effectuated by the sacraments is meant to overflow into our entire existence. Jesus has come to reveal to us who God is so that not only we may come to know him and experience his life and love throughout our daily existence into eternity, but so that we can also grow to know ourselves who have been created by him in his image and likeness. St. John wrote in his first letter something about our Trinitarian God so simple yet so theologically deep. He said, God is love. This statement strongly implies that the one God somehow had to be a trinity of persons. For God to be love, he couldn't have been monopersonal, because no one can love in a vacuum. In love, there's always one who loves, one who is loved in the content of their love for each other. God the Father and God the Son in all eternity loved each other so much that their love generated, the theological term is spirated, a third person, the Holy Spirit. They exist in an eternal communion of persons in love, an eternal mutual self-giving that flows from and reinforces their interpersonal unity, three persons in one God. This love who God is overflows as we see in creation and redemption. So we'll hear in this Sunday's Gospel when St. John tells us, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son so that everyone who believes in him might not perish but might have eternal life. Made in God's image and likeness were created in and for love. We're called to live in a communion of persons in love. Jesus prayed on Holy Thursday that we might be one just as he and the Father are one so that the world may know that God the Father sent the Son and loves us just as much as he loves the Son. The whole revelation of God as Trinity is meant to be revealed by the communion of love among Christians as God's image and likeness. This image is meant to be reflected above all in marriage in the way God created not him or her but a them created man and woman to exist in a communion of persons in love so strong that their love for each other can actually generate a third person, similar to what we see in the Trinity. St. John Paul II used to say that this is the deepest thing that can be said about the Imago Dei. We are in God's image most, not by reason or our capacity freely to choose, but by our nature in call to live in an existential loving communion of persons. This image of God as loving communion is meant to be reflected above all in marriage and family, but it's meant to overflow likewise into the church and through the church and into society. 
Each of us, as we approach Trinity Sunday, is summoned to ask whether we're really striving to live as a loving communion of persons in God's image and likeness. Whether we live individualistically, egocentrically, and selfishly, or whether we live as persons and instruments of communion, especially at a time in our culture in which divisions are so much out in the open, something manifested not just in our widening political polarization, but also social disharmony. Christians as individuals and together as church are called to be signs of union, signs of the Trinity. If we're going to live in the image of the Trinitarian God who is love, that means we're called to imitate God's love. We can focus on three different ways. First, God's love is sacrificial. As the gospel this Sunday reminds us, he took on our nature to give it so that we might not perish but live forever. We're similarly called to give our life for others. Second, God's love is other-centered, with each of the persons of the Blessed Trinity speaking of and seeking to do the works of the other. For us, we're called to be focused on God and others more than ourselves. Third, God's love is merciful, something that extends even to those who oppose him. Similarly, our love is supposed to make us merciful like God is merciful. Through all three of these ways of loving, we become more and more God's image, chips off the old divine block, capable of giving witness to the Trinity in the midst of a world that so often refuses sacrifice, mercy, and which prioritizes oneself over anything and everything else. How much our culture, how much even our parishes need this revelation of the central mystery of Christian faith and life. This Trinity Sunday is a chance for us once again to hear God calling us to live up to our dignity and enter more deeply into the communion with him and with others that will bring true joy to our life in this world and eternal joy in the next. It's time for us to receive the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father and the communion of the Holy Spirit, to dwell in that grace, love, and communion and let it overflow. As we prepare for Sunday Mass, it's time to thank our triune God for the gift and calling to this divine communion of love and to ask him for all the help he knows we need so that we might truly be men and women in a communion of love who say by words and deeds in this world and forever, praise the Holy Trinity, undivided unity, holy God, mighty God, God immortal, be adored. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 